my first early memories are actually in Iran. You know, it's, it's food, <laughs> of course, and family. Like most food stories, food blogger and cookbook author Laura Bashar's story is centered around community and family. But it's also a story of change, resilience, fortitude, commitment, and patience. Laura's food heritage is steeped in herbs and spices, crispy rice dishes and long simmered stews, and large family dinners prepared in tiny, simple kitchens by women whose allegiance to the art of cooking could be tasted in every bite. I have memories of these family events or you're feeding technically maybe 40 people every week and the table is enough food to feed a hundred. So the dining tables would be filled with multiple stews and kebab and rice and then the desserts and the pastries. A Persian family is all about getting together and it's also getting together with food and it's all about the food and the sitting together, cooking together. And it was just always getting together every week with my cousins I mean, you're talking multiple cousins because my mom is one of six siblings and just a big family and distant cousins were as close to me as first cousins. So we were all cousins, that's how we knew each other. We we're just all cousins no matter how far back the relationship would go. And that's, that's some of my best memories. We're hanging out with my cousins, hanging out with my family, and of course the food. Welcome to the Heritage Cookbook Project podcast, where we document and preserve heritage by connecting with cooks across the country who share food memories, family recipes, and a little bit about themselves. And I'm your host, Leigh Olson. My mom is Persian. She grew up in Karamanshah, which is very close to Iraq. And as my mom grew up, you know, she tells us the story that girls were only educated up to elementary school. This is in the uh, 40s and 50s. And she had to petition and get eight girls who wanted to go to middle school. So she would petition. She found eight girls and they, they would go and they would go to middle school. Then she had to petition again to go and get a high school education. Once she got her high school degree, she wanted to go to college, which was, again, unheard of. And my poor grandmother didn't understand where she went wrong with my mom. But uh, my mom and her twin sister both went to college. And uh, it was a very big deal at the time. They went to college in Tehran at Tehran University. And in Iran, I think even today, you take something, this big test called the concours. It assesses your skill level and says, oh, you scored high enough, you can be a doctor. No, you didn't score high enough, but you can, as my mom said, she, could, she didn't score high enough to be a doctor, but she could be a geologist. So she became a geologist that way. She became the first female geologist in Iran. From there, to get to the U.S., you had to get a scholarship. And because her grades were high, she got a scholarship from the government to go study in the U.S. But part of that scholarship was that you were going to come back to Iran and teach. She went back to Iran to try teaching, which was very difficult because none of the male students would take my mother very seriously. And this was a time where both my parents were newly married, living in Iran. My dad's American. He's a history buff, my dad. And my dad saw a pretty girl, and he's trying to talk to her, and she says she was from Iran. He said, oh, the land of Persopolis. At the time, in the 60s, nobody knew about Iran. And my mom was shocked that not only did he know 
Iran, but also Persopolis and the history of ancient Persia. And that was his pickup line when he met my mom. And then they came to the U.S. mostly because the culture was just not ready to, to deal with a female professor. Both my parents eventually got a job at the German oil company that brought them back to Iran, which was always the goal to go back to Iran and live in Iran. So back in 1974, we went back to Iran and had a great time because all my mom's family was there. After the break, Laura talks about kebabs, stews, and her family's timely decision to return to the States. This episode of the Heritage Cookbook Project podcast is supported by Bob's Red Mill. When you're making those treasured family recipes, don't leave the quality of your ingredients to chance. Visit bobsredmill.com to find out more about this employee-owned company, their products, and how you can fill your pantry with them. With their products, not their employees. I have memories of my grandmother preparing kebab over her little grill. She was in an apartment, and she had a little balcony and had this little hibachi kind of little grill. And I actually have a picture of where my grandmother is hunched, you know, sitting on her haunches and fanning the flames and turning the skewers on her little grill and just lovingly making kebab for all of us. She had a very simple setup and she just loved doing it and her kebab was amazing. It wasn't just kebab, it was just so many foods she would make for all of us. In addition to the amazing kebabs that Laura's grandmother made, she carefully prepared traditional Persian dishes like tadig, pastries, stuffed grape leaves, and stews. One particular stew that still transports Laura to her grandmother's small apartment in Iran is gorma sadzi. Gorma sadzi is a very aromatic dish, and I remember walking up the stairwell to her apartment. I could smell it downstairs as we're walking up the stairs to find her apartment. You can smell gorma sadzi in the hallways. You can smell it as you're walking up the stairway as you're approaching the apartment. Honestly, if it wasn't for the revolution, we probably would have stayed there indefinitely. It was a very volatile time. My mom says you could feel the tension. You know, this is a time where people were fighting against the over-Westernization of the country. Girls who weren't wearing chadors had acid thrown on their faces. Outwardly, the economic developments in Iran seemed good. But social discontent grew steadily within groups that had become marginalized. They accused the Shah of irreligion and foreign subservience. A culture that had once been very traditional, very conservative and rural, had been thrust into a very modern, industrial, and very urban way of life. It wasn't until Laura's parents traveled to Germany on a business trip that they fully realized the implications of this discontent. They uh, traveled to Germany for one business trip, and once they read what the American press, the Western press, was saying what was going on, that's when they realized it is time to go. It, it wouldn't be safe for my dad, um, let alone us. Uh, I was born in the U.S. Uh, my brother was not. If we had stayed there after the revolution, it would have been my brother would not have been able to leave the country. Um, it just we were very lucky at the timing of when we left. When we left, it was literally right before one of the milestone events that there was a uh, 
movie theater fire that was considered what sparked the revolution in Iran. And we left, I think, a week before that happened. Laura's family landed in Houston, where both of her parents were employed in the oil industry. The hours were long for the Ph.D. professional geologists, but the gravity of food and family was unmistakable at the dinner table. We had a home-cooked meal every single night. Uh, Whether she made it ahead of time, whether she would start cooking when she got home, whether I helped her as I got older, I would help sometimes start the meal. Whatever it was, we always had a home-cooked meal for dinner. We primarily ate um, Persian stews, and we ate a lot of seafood because we were off the Gulf Coast, a lot of Creole food because of Louisiana and our ties there. You know the saying, absence makes the heart grow fonder? Well, I think that you can apply that to the foods that we grew up eating. You know, the ones that we often took for granted. This was the case when Laura left home to start her life in Florida. Uh, When I was living in Miami, uh, this was after college, and I was working in an advertising agency. And Miami has wonderful food, but you don't find Persian restaurants in Miami at all. So I was always craving Persian food, and I would visit my mom, and I would come home with a frozen brick of Ormasabzi back, you know, passing it through uh, inspection and everything and take it back with me. And, uh, but I wanted to cook it myself. And that's how I started. I started my recipe with my mom's recipe. So Khoreshte Ormasabzi. And Khoreshte is stew. Orme means chopped and sabzi are greens and herbs. So sabz is the color green, sabzi are the herbs. And this is, it's technically a green herb stew. Uh, but my my brother and I, when we grew up, says my mom's making green stew. We always called it green stew. And uh, it, this is a very quintessential, popular Persian dish. No two mixes that people come up with are really the same. Everybody has their own variety. But it's basically parsley, cilantro, green onions. And then I like to use a filler like spinach or kale. And then you also use fenugreek. What gives the... Gorma Sabzi, its iconic smell is the fenugreek. And that's where you could smell it, you know, down the hall, down the street, you know, all over the apartment complex when whoever's making the stew, because it's just such a wonderful aroma. So there's this, we, I call it controversy, but, you know, Gorma Sabzi is, everybody has their own herb mixture that they use, and then the whole preparation. Um, some people prefer the dried herbs to the fresh herbs. I personally prefer the fresh herbs. And then my mother-in-law uses a lot more oil than I do and slowly frying it. Um, And it becomes this really deep, dark green that's, I say it's almost black. I make my own stew meat from London broil. I like to use the London broil cut. You can do a chuck um, or just already pre-cut whatever they're selling at the butcher for stew meat. You can use lamb, lamb shanks as well. You can also use beef shanks. My mom uses beef shanks with the bone. Uh, You can also, I had a professor in University of Arizona who's a vegetarian, and she made it vegetarian-based, and she actually put uh, those baby bella mushrooms in there. The the other thing you have in there, you have beans. I like to use kidney beans in the dish. My mom uses pinto beans. And as far as other flavors and spices, Persians love uh, their dried limes, a little smaller than a golf ball, and they're brown, wrinkly, look horrible, but they are sour, and they're dried limes that you chop up and put in the stew. 
to give it that wonderful tang. And then you saute everything and then you add it to the stew and then you have to let it cook. So the whole process can take five to six hours from start to finish, but even still it tastes so much better the next day. A lot of people will not eat lorma sabzi the day they make it. They insist you have to eat it the next day because it tastes better. All the Persian stews are served over basmati rice, white rice usually. Although some stews, some Persian stews I've had taste really wonderful with brown rice. Gorma sabzi just wouldn't be the same on brown rice. It has to be on white rice in my opinion. <laughs> we parboil it until the, the outside is soft, but the inside is still a little bit hard. And that takes about six minutes in hot boiling water. And then we strain it, pass it through the strainer, remove the water, put the pot back on the stove, and add some oil to the bottom. Everybody fights over the crunchy crust that's on the bottom of the pot, the tadik. And you can do potatoes on the bottom. We do uh, lavash pieces or even tortillas on the bottom. And you can also do rice with a little bit of yogurt to make a nice thick rice-based crust on the bottom. And then you just layer in the rice over that. You don't want to compress it because that'll make it sticky. You just layer, very gently layer the rice back into the pot. And then you're steaming it again. And then when you put the lid on, you cover it with a towel because you want all that extra moisture to be absorbed by the towel because you don't want soggy rice. And that takes about, when you're doing the second steam, that takes about 45 minutes for it to cook. It is, it is not a hard dish to make in terms of skill level. And it, is, it takes a long time and it just requires a lot of patience. But be patient. You'll, you'll love the result. I hope that you enjoyed listening to Laura's story about her memories of living in Iran and of a Persian stew that ties her to her culture. If you want to hear more stories like this, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The full recipe for Gorma Sabzi can be found at theheritagecookbookproject.com. And don't forget to register for access to the printable cookbook pages. Cheers! Oh, and if you decide to make Laura's recipe for Gorma Sabzi, don't confuse fenugreek seeds for the leaves that are used in the recipe. The Heritage Cookbook Project podcast is produced and edited by me. I'm Leigh Olson. Sound design and mixing also by me. The music credit for this episode goes to Ali Reza Farouk Sadi for sitar. <laughs>